Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. The Peter Schiff Show. I like to thank Bambi for supporting my podcast. You know, HR managers' salaries average $70,000 a year, but only Bambi gives you a dedicated HR manager for just $99 a month. So get your free HR compliance audit at Bambi.com gold. That's Bambi spelled B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash gold. Well, I'm going to start today's podcast by talking about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, Coinbase. You know, a lot of people have been waiting all week for me to comment on Bitcoin, particularly given what happened to Bitcoin over the prior weekend. I think it was Saturday night uh, when it really fell out of bed. And I was going to do it, but then I got distracted by other things and I put out two consecutive podcasts on completely unrelated topics, which I don't even want to mention on this particular podcast. But if you listened to my last two podcasts, especially my last podcast, you not only know what the topic of those podcasts is, but why I'm not going to mention it now. And if you didn't listen to those two, well, give them a listen. But now what you've all been waiting all week for I am going to talk a little Bitcoin. Now, if you're not aware, Bitcoin really had another one of its crashes last weekend. It all happened, I think, on a Saturday night, if I'm not mistaken. But it was a very sharp crash of about 20%, right, which is par for the Bitcoin course. Uh, We have lots of big, sharp moves. The interesting thing is 
Wall Street likes to define a bear market as a decline of 20%. That's technically, you know, uh, how they define it to differentiate it from a correction. So if a market goes down from its highs by less than 20%, Wall Street just says, oh, it's a correction. But once it goes down at least 20%, now that correction uh, becomes a bear market. And of course, all bear markets look like corrections when they get started. You just don't realize that you're in a bear market until you correct by 20%. The problem with Bitcoin is sometimes it drops 20% so quickly that the bear markets end almost as soon as they begin, which is why you have such a high level of complacency uh, that it doesn't matter because we can ride out these bear markets because they're going to quickly uh, move to, to new highs. I think that's setting uh, people up uh, for a huge disappointment uh, when that doesn't happen because just because it happened in the past doesn't mean it's going to happen again in the future. There's an old saying on Wall Street, past performance does not guarantee future success. And probably nowhere is that more appropriate than with cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin. And so what happened over the weekend is Bitcoin fell from just under 65,000, which was the high that it hit. I think it was the day before the Coinbase IPO, if it wasn't maybe the morning of that IPO, uh, because you had a lot of hoopla leading up to the Coinbase IPO. And so all things crypto got bid up because they were hyping and marketing the Coinbase IPO as a milestone event that was going to usher in a new leg uh, to the bull market for all things crypto. And if you remember on my podcast, I thought it was more likely the sign of a top uh, than a new bottom. In fact, I likened the Coinbase IPO for its significance to crypto to the Time Warner acquisition of AOL because at the time, Wall Street was very excited, particularly CNBC. They couldn't get enough of it. This validated uh, the new economy and all the dot-com stocks. Now that you had an old-fashioned brick-and-mortar company like Time Warner uh, buying AOL, right? And so this was a a significant milestone event in the life of the dot-coms. And CNBC couldn't have been more optimistic. And of course, they couldn't have been more wrong because they were looking at the peak of the bubble. And ironically, they rang the bell. You know, there's another old Wall Street saying, nobody rings a bell at the top. Well, sometimes there are bells rung at the top. It's just that people don't hear them. And I think in that case, CNBC itself rang the bell and it didn't have any idea that it was doing it. And to me, it looked like deja vu all over again with the Coinbase IPO. These guys, uh, you know, were as giddy as, you know, a schoolgirl with a crush. Uh, on uh, Coinbase, that they couldn't get enough of it. It was the most bullish thing ever. It was nonstop coverage on crypto news, Bitcoin, uh, what I named CNBC. So bull after bull after bull coming on, talking about why you got to buy this stock. It's going to keep going up. Forget about the valuation. This is the beginning of a whole new life in crypto. And uh, this is a, you know such a significant event, right? To me, I kind of remember because you know you got to go back 20 years. But a lot of the same guys, a lot of the people that work at CNBC, they worked there 20 years ago. I remember watching these guys. Some of them came from uh, this old channel, uh, Financial News Network, which got bought by CNBC. And I used to watch FNN 
before uh, CNBC uh, merged with them or acquired them. And some of these guys uh, came over from FNM, but some of these guys are the same guys. I mean, some of them are new, uh, but some of them were there. And it really reminded me of the way they covered that event. And so I said, hey, this maybe is the Time Warner AOL moment in the life of cryptocurrencies, in the life of Bitcoin. And, you know, a lot of people like to make fun of me in the crypto community because they say, hey, everything I say about Bitcoin is wrong. Well, so far, it doesn't look like I was wrong about this because, by the way, as of today, Coin, which was down 6.8% today, this is a new low. It is now down 23% from the IPO price, I think, of $381 a share. So if you lined up in the queue and you bought Coinbase on the IPO price, and you couldn't buy it before that. This was, remember, this was a direct listing. It wasn't a traditional IPO where, you know, the, the investment banks gave you a bunch of stock. And so by the time it started trading, there was this big pop. The cheapest you could have got stock was that opening price of 381. Now, the smart money, as we've learned over the weekend, were the insiders who were dumping all of their shares. But of course, these shares had to come from somewhere uh, in order to uh, have a direct listing. And they came from all the insiders that were unloading their overpriced Coinbase stock on all the speculators who were enticed into the market, in part uh, by all the hype on CNBC. But today, based on the $293.45 close, and we're already trading a few dollars lower than that in the aftermarket. I just started recording the podcast shortly after the market closed, and there's already more downward pressure on this stock. But it's in a bear market already. It's not even a week, or it's been a week, and this is a bear market in Coinbase. In fact, if you were unlucky enough to buy the high print, which I think was registered maybe within 15 minutes of the IPO as uh, CNBC was cheerleading every uptick uh, and as if it was going to grow to the sky, you're down 32%. You've almost lost a third of your money in a week buying into the Coinbase IPO. So Coinbase is in a bear market. I think it's early in a bear market, but Bitcoin itself went from a new all-time record high, right, just around the IPO of Coinbase, and two to three days later, over the weekend, it went from an all-time record high to an official bear market, down just over 20%. The low, I think, on that Saturday night was 51500 Now, of course, the initial uh, reaction among the crypto crowd was buy the dip, right? Just like Pavlov's dog, right? There's a dip, you buy it. Why? Because everybody who bought dips in the past got rewarded. And so you see a dip in the present and you buy it because you expect a similar reward. Well, that happens until it doesn't happen. And we did get a bit of a recovery from those lows. So after going down to uh, 51,500, we did get up as high as I think close to about 58,000. Not quite, but we never peaked back above the $60,000 milestone. And then we rolled over. And as I am recording this podcast now, we're just back at around 52,000. This is approximately the lowest we've been. Actually, we're a little under 52,000 now, but this is the lowest we've been since that 
brief moment when we were down there for that Saturday night dip. So if we end up taking out that low, which was 51.5, and in fact, we keep on dropping as I'm talking, now it's 51.7. Again, this is a pretty fast market, but if we end up taking out that low, this would be an example where buying that dip did not work because rather than a move to new highs, we went down and made fresh lows. And another indication of trouble brewing for Bitcoin is another Bitcoin prediction that I got right. And I was one of the first people out there to make this observation long before it became a reality. And everybody in the crypto community just laughed at me. And that is the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, CNBC's biggest advertiser that dumped I don't know how much money into this massive nonstop ad campaign to dump gold and buy GBTC. They didn't specifically tell people to buy Bitcoin. They said buy GBTC. That's the best way to buy your Bitcoin is by buying GBTC, which is the Bitcoin uh, investment trust that Grayscale owns. Anyway, what I said on this podcast was that my prediction was that that big premium that GBTC was sporting would one day turn to a discount. And that prediction came true. In fact, once we broke to a discount, we had been holding at that discount for well over a month. It generally was averaging maybe an 8 to 10% discount, and we never could really close that gap. And not only did I predict that that would happen, but I also predicted that it would be a bearish event for Bitcoin because a lot of the buying in Bitcoin was being done by the Grayscale Trust. And the reason it was able to do all this buying was because of that huge premium, because all this money was flowing into Bitcoin because institutions could buy that trust at its NAV and then get the shares at a huge premium and immediately make a profit. Now, they had a lockup period, but there was such a huge profit built in that they could immediately mark to market that you had a lot of demand. And that's where some of this so-called institutional demand was coming from. They weren't buying GBTC because they wanted to make a, a long-term bet on Bitcoin. They were buying it because Grayscale was giving away free money. And so they were just arbitraging that spread between the price of Bitcoin and GBTC and uh, the NAV. They could buy at NAV and they could immediately see that premium on their customer statements. And if the premium held up long enough, they can actually exit their positions. Well, what I said is eventually all this money is going to want to get out of Grayscale and the premium is going to go away and turn into a discount. And once the Grayscale Trust started to trade at a discount, well, they could no longer attract those institutional flows. That money would stop coming into GBTC, which means GBTC could not take that money into the Bitcoin market and start buying up Bitcoin. And so as demand for Grayscale Trust went away, demand for Bitcoin would go away. As demand for Bitcoin went away, the price of Bitcoin would go down. As the price of Bitcoin would go down, the discount on the Grayscale Trust would get even wider. Now, in fact, I just read a story in fact, I know about it. It was tweeted out uh, by Grayscale that they had just gone into the market and bought more Bitcoin so that the quantity of Bitcoin in their trust had increased. And to me, it makes no sense that that is happening because to the extent that the Bitcoin trust has cash to invest in Bitcoin, why would it go into the market and buy Bitcoin 
when the shares of the trust are trading at a 13% discount, which is what it closed at yesterday, 13% discount to NAV, why would you go into the market and pay a dollar for something you can buy for 87 cents simply by buying back your own shares? So it seemed to me that the primary interest of GBTC was not to maximize shareholder value by narrowing uh, that discount and buying some cheap Bitcoin. They wanted to go into the Bitcoin market and try to manipulate the price, try to push the price higher uh, by buying Bitcoin. Well, you know what? It didn't work because despite their buying, the price of Bitcoin continued to fall and the discount of the Grayscale Trust continued to widen. In fact, GBTC today closed at the highest discount I've ever seen at just over 16%. And the Grayscale Trust is deeper into a bear market than is Bitcoin. I mean, Bitcoin right now is not quite down 20%. It's almost down 20% from its highs. But the Grayscale Trust, based on today's close, is down 29% from its high set earlier this year. So we're much deeper into bear market territory. This is going to put a lot of pressure on Bitcoin because obviously... If you want to buy Bitcoin, why would you buy it when the Grayscale Trust owns a bunch of Bitcoin and it's now at a 16% discount from NAV? In other words, you can buy Bitcoin for a dollar or you can buy the Grayscale Trust Bitcoin for 84 cents. Now, yes, you're going to pay a 2% a year management fee, but depending on what your holding period is, uh, you know, you're getting a great deal on your Bitcoin. And so Grayscale, instead of now being Bitcoin's biggest buyer, it's actually Bitcoin's biggest competitor because anybody who really wants Bitcoin can buy GBTC instead of buying Bitcoin. And so that not only is... Grayscale now supplying new demand to Bitcoin. It is actually drawing demand away from Bitcoin. But of course, Bitcoin requires new demand. That's the only way anybody can sell is if new buyers come in. But there are no new buyers. They've already piled in, right? Everybody was so excited. Everybody who really wants to buy Bitcoin because they're sure it's going to go to the moon. Well, they've already bought it. The people who haven't bought, they don't want to buy. They're skeptical or they don't believe in it. Right. So they're not there. And so the market is dumping. And of course, as the market for Bitcoin goes down, well, that puts more downward pressure on GBTC. So people don't want to buy that either. In fact, think about the institutions who piled into GBTC uh, because they got suckered into it uh, by you know this huge pump and dump going on on CNBC. And think of all these CNBC viewers uh, who loaded up on Bitcoin. Uh, and they bought this trust and they paid a 10, 15, 20% premium. They were so excited about Bitcoin that they were willing to pay this huge premium for the privilege of not having to buy it, right? Which I always thought was laughable because one of the selling points of Bitcoin was that it was so easy to own and so easy to buy. But then the way they sold GBTC was they said, well, you don't want to have to hassle with actually buying Bitcoin and holding it yourself. It's so complicated. It's so difficult. We've made it easy. You could just buy uh, a GBTC. Oh, and by the way, we're going to charge you a 2% management fee. I mean, it is ridiculous because they were saying that one of the reasons that Bitcoin was so much better than 
than gold was because, you know, gold was so expensive to buy and store. Well, it's much cheaper to buy uh, GLD. Their management fees are far lower than the management fees to hold Bitcoin through the Grayscale Trust. So the very reason that Bitcoin was supposed to be better than gold, it's actually much worse than gold to the extent that you buy it through Grayscale. But I always thought it was ironic that in order to market Grayscale, they actually had to trash Bitcoin by telling you how difficult it was to actually buy it and custody it yourself. So it's so great, despite the fact that it's so difficult to own. Well, if it's so difficult to own in custody, then what's the value of it? And if it doesn't have any value, then why buy it uh, through GBTC? But in any event, all of these guys that were willing to buy the fund at a big premium are now so desperate to get out of it that they're willing to accept a 16% discount. So in other words, this huge influx of institutional money that was coming in, because supposedly a lot of the institutional money was coming in through GBTC because, you know, they needed these, this custodian because they, they were fiduciaries and they needed, they needed custody and they couldn't just have their own wallets. And so the demand for GBTC was supposed to represent this newfound institutional interest that was going to power this new leg of the bull market. And these guys are now so desperate to unload the Grayscale GBTC shares that they bought that they're willing to accept a 16% discount for the privilege of getting rid of these shares. And by the way, while I was just talking, we traded below 51,500. And therefore, we took out that crash low of Saturday night. So anybody who bought that low, if they haven't sold, if they still own that Bitcoin, they're now down. Now, the question is, is this going to be some type of double bottom where we just barely take out the low or are we going to go much, much lower? Now, from my perspective, there's so much evidence that we've just put in a top in Bitcoin. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors, and add blocks. No custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise, and with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. The question is, is it a short-term top and the beginning of a bear market that may one day see a bull market that takes Bitcoin to new highs, or is this the final top? Has Bitcoin seen its all-time record high, and this is the beginning of the final bear market? Nobody knows that now. Now, I know all the crypto fanatics, well, they're 100% confident uh, that this is nothing, that you know Bitcoin is going to go to a million, and all of this is a bunch of noise. But we don't know that. You look at the chart, you don't know that. I would say that at a minimum, we're going to see a deeper correction, 
maybe down to uh, you know, 26, 27,000, up to 30,000, or something like that. I mean, some type of meaningful decline is going to follow uh, this parabolic move up, even if Bitcoin is going to eventually recover and make a new high above 65,000. Before it does that, it is likely to go down precipitously first. I'd say at a minimum, maybe about a 50% correction, maybe a 60% correction from the peak. The problem for a lot of these long-term hodlers is what do you do? Because if Bitcoin goes back down below 30,000, right, um, you don't know for sure whether or not it's going to bounce back up to 65,000 or whether it's going to continue lower after the next consolidation. I mean, I doubt that we're just going to go from 65,000 straight down to 10,000. I mean, I think we're going to go to 10,000 and I think we're going to go a lot lower, but we may spend a lot of time uh, around that 25, 30, 35,000 level before the next leg down. And of course, as it's doing it, you may have a lot of these long-term Bitcoin guys adding to their position because they're so confident that they're going to make new highs. And instead, they end up loading up and getting even longer in front of an even bigger and more protracted decline. And what may in fact happen to a lot of these crypto guys, even the ones that got in earlier and who now have profits, big paper profits, and of course they haven't taken any of them, they've just been hodling the entire time, but you get this big 50% decline, 60% decline, and now you're convinced, okay, Bitcoin's going to make a new high, and now you buy, you load up even more, and what you end up doing is averaging your price up. Then you get another leg down, maybe Bitcoin goes down to 10,000, and now all of a sudden you don't have any gains anymore. Even if you're still holding some Bitcoin that you bought at 500 or 1,000, if it goes to 10,000 and you bought a bunch at 30,000 or 35,000, depending on how much money you put in at those higher prices relative to what you put in in the lower prices, you may still end up being underwater, having an average price for all of your Bitcoins that is higher than the current price. And a lot of people are going to find themselves in that position. And then we're going to have another big leg down in the bear market and it's going to be all over. In the meantime, there are a lot of hodlers who have borrowed against their Bitcoin, right? This has become very popular because why sell something that's always going to go up? You know, why not just borrow the money and hold out of the Bitcoin because the Bitcoin keeps going up and up and up? Well, what happens when you get a big decline in Bitcoin, like 50, 60 percent? Well, a lot of people that borrowed against their Bitcoin are going to have margin calls from their lenders. And that means they have to put more money into their accounts or their Bitcoin are going to be sold. Now, to the extent that people borrowed against their Bitcoin, they probably did it because they didn't have any money. If they had any extra money, they wouldn't need to borrow it and they would have just spent it. So they're probably all in on Bitcoin. And so when they get a margin call, they won't be able to meet it. And what does that mean? Well, that means their Bitcoin gets sold. So there's going to be a lot of forced liquidation among hodlers who got levered up. They're not going to want to sell, but they're not going to have any choice. They're going to have to sell. And I think that may be one of the differences between this move down and some of the prior move downs is there was no leverage in Bitcoin back then. There's a whole bunch of leverage in Bitcoin now, 
And it looks great on the way up because I think a lot of people who did use leverage probably utilized that leverage to buy even more Bitcoin as the price was rising and they had more buying power. Well, that means as the price is falling, that buying power goes away and ultimately what they were buying, they're now going to be selling whether they want to or not. And now when these uh, lenders are liquidating, they're not liquidating with a limit. They're liquidating at the market. So now you have a lot of people selling and you don't have a lot of buying and the price could implode. Again, by the way, as I'm recording now, we just went below 51,000. So a little bit more distance now between the Saturday night low and the price that we're trading at right now. Again, it's a very volatile and fast market. So I don't know exactly where the price of Bitcoin is going to be when people get around to listening to this podcast, it could be a lot lower than it is right now. Maybe it'll even be higher, but I think the market has broken. Look at this. This is a top, all the classic ingredients, either a permanent all-time high, as was the high for, you know, the dot-coms with AOL, or it is the beginning of a meaningful 2018 type correction. Remember, Bitcoin went up to near 20,000 at the end of 2016, and then it fell all the way down back below 4,000, right? We had the the crypto winter. Well, this could be another winter. It could be even colder. It could be even longer, right? Even if it ultimately ends with a return to summer and we end up getting a new high, how many people are actually going to survive to see it? How many people are going to be forced to sell their Bitcoin uh, before that even happens? But again, I think there is a very strong chance that this time it's going to be an endless winter. There will never be another spring. This is going to be a permanent winter when it comes to Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. And the very peak, what caused the sun to set on all of crypto was the one event that everybody was so confident signified that crypto had finally come of age and had gone mainstream. It was the listing of Coinbase the very platform where everybody trades crypto. And of course, the valuation assigned to Coinbase was absolutely ridiculous based on pie-in-the-sky forecasts of ever-increasing crypto prices. Well, usually the markets end up fooling the greatest number of people. And that's what I think has happened in this case. They waited until the boat was completely loaded with crypto bulls no bears, everybody is loaded up, everybody is ready for a moonshot, and instead the bottom drops out of the market. And again, as I said before, it's not a watershed event, it's an event where the crypto investor is drowned (laughs) by the deluge, and the smart money were the ones that sold. The people who were able to ring the bell and cash out of Coinbase, they go home winners. Uh, The people who were selling into all the hype all the pumping that was going on on CNBC, somebody was dumping, somebody was supplying the market with all the coins that everybody was buying. So those people are the winners and everybody who's hodling, they end up the losers, the classic bag holders. In fact, all the crypto-related stocks were getting hit. Take a look at MicroStrategy. That may be the poster child. That stock was down just over 9% today. It closed at 598.20. Remember, the 52-week high earlier this year was $1,315 a share. We're now down better than 50% for MicroStrategy. So we are deep 
in bear market territory there. But, you know, it's still a long way down. So a lot of pain still left for MicroStrategy shareholders. The 52-week low is 109. So we're a long way away from that. And I think we're going to take that out in this bear market. You know, the CEO of MicroStrategy, Michael Saylor, just had a gold versus Bitcoin debate with Frank Justra. But, you know, I have been challenging Sailor to a debate with me for some time. In fact, several of the podcasts in which we have both appeared separately, the hosts have invited us to appear together for a debate, and he always refuses. Of course, I always uh, accept. I don't know what Sailor is afraid of, other than the fact that I think he's worried that if he confronts me, I'm going to do a really good job on calling him out on all the BS way he pumps up Bitcoin. And I uh, issued another challenge to him just yesterday on my Twitter account. It's got more than 5,000 likes right now and a lot of retweets and shares, but not a peep out of Michael Saylor. He completely ignores uh, my challenge. And again, I think it's because he's afraid uh, of, uh, of going up against me because clearly I am the most vocal and most well-known Bitcoin bears. So why not take advantage of the opportunity uh, to uh, take me down a peg, right? Or even try to convince me. And even if he doesn't think there's any way that he's going to win me over, maybe he feels by debating me, he'll be able to win over some of my followers who obviously are going to watch this debate between me and Michael Saylor. So if he's so confident in his ability to beat me and to convince my followers that I'm wrong and that he's right, well, why wouldn't he want to take advantage of my invitation for a friendly debate? I know from experience, when you are running a business, HR issues can kill you. Wrongful termination lawsuits, anti-discrimination, minimum wage requirements, all sorts of labor regulations, and those HR manager salaries, they ain't cheap. They average $70,000 a year. That's where Bambi comes in. That's Bambi spelled B-A-M-B-E-E. It was created specifically for small business owners. You can get a dedicated HR manager who can craft HR policy. They can maintain your compliance and they can do it all for just $99 a month. With Bamba, you can change your HR from one of your biggest liabilities to one of your biggest strengths. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone or email or for real-time chat. From onboarding to terminations, they customize your policies to fit your business, and they help you manage your employees on a day-to-day basis, all for just $99 a month. And it's month-to-month, no hidden fees. You can cancel any time, and they won't sue you for wrongful termination. You didn't start your business because you want to spend time on HR compliance. You started your business to make money for yourself, and let Bambi help you do that, and you can start by getting your free HR audit today. So go to Bambi.com gold right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com gold, spelled BAM to the B-E-E dot com slash gold. Enough on crypto. I want to talk about another topic, uh, taxes and Puerto Rico. And of course, those two uh, are related to each other because a lot of people are moving to Puerto Rico to get out of taxes, in particular income taxes. And there's a lot of talk today now, focus on the fact 
that capital gains taxes are going to go up. Now, I don't know why everybody kind of waited till today to really, you know, acknowledge this, but this has been the elephant in the room that everybody should have been able to smell, uh, let alone see. We know they're going to raise taxes. Supposedly, these higher capital gains taxes are necessary to pay for Biden's human infrastructure package, which is laughable the way the government is characterizing welfare as human infrastructure. It's not infrastructure. It's welfare. It's just that they want to redesign it to make it more appealing to the public. So instead of saying we want to tax the rich to pay for welfare, we're going to tax the rich to pay for human infrastructure, which is just another way of saying welfare. And of course, the taxes on the rich won't even come close to paying for this human welfare package. So most of the money is going to be printed. So the poor are going to be stuck with the cost of their own welfare because it's going to increase their cost of living by pushing up consumer prices. And What they're going to do with capital gains is they are going to tax capital gains as ordinary income for upper income people. They're going to preserve the lower tax for lower income people, but for upper income people who have the majority of the capital gains, they're going to tax capital gains the same as ordinary income, and they are going to be raising the ordinary income tax rate as well. So the current rate is 37. It's going up to 39.6. The current capital gains rate is 20%, but the actual rate is 23.8 because the Obamacare tax, which is really the Medicare tax, that portion of the payroll tax was made applicable to capital gains. And so as a result of that, the real effective capital gains tax rate is going to be 43.4%. Now, the current rate is 23.8%. So that is an 82% increase in capital gains. Now, of course, depending on where you live, I mean, if you live in Florida or Nevada uh, or uh, Tennessee or Wyoming or Washington state, there are a number of states that don't have uh, income taxes. But if you live in California or New York, Uh, you've got a pretty big bill. New Yorkers, for example, are going to be paying 52.2% capital gains when you combine their state capital gains taxes, which are no longer deductible uh, from their federal taxes. And in California, well, their rate is 56.7%. Now, obviously, in both of these states where the capital gains rate exceeds 50%, that means the government's get more of your gain than you get to keep, right? When you get less than half of the gain, the the government really uh, was the owner of the asset because the government got the lion's share of the gain. But, you know, I don't think it's going to stop there. I think it's just the beginning because I think eventually they are going to apply the other 12.5% payroll tax to ordinary income as well. They're going to remove the cap so that you have to pay the 12.5% on all of your income, just like you now have to pay the 3.8% on all of your income. And so if you add 12.5% to 43.4%, you're going to get a 55.9% federal capital gains. My prediction is we won't get that rate on this hike. We'll get that rate on the next hike, which is coming, especially since you have this enormous deficit in Social Security, and they're going to look for some way to close that gap, at least partially, and it will be through uh, applying the payroll tax to all income, 
uh, and that means it would apply to capital gains. But that also means that the rate for New Yorkers would rise to 64.7% capital gains, and the rate for Californians would rise to 69.2%, practically 70% capital gains tax in California. Now, a lot of people are going to want to avoid a 70% capital gains tax rather than paying it. Now, one way to avoid it is just not to sell anything, right? Because you don't pay the tax until you sell. And and so if the tax is that high, nobody will sell. Now, what some people may do is just borrow against their stocks rather than selling them. Because if you borrow against your stocks, you don't pay income taxes on the money you borrow because it's a loan. And if we have a lot of inflation and stock prices keep going up, then the only way to avoid the tax is just never sell and continuously borrow money that you never repay. And of course, as inflation continues to erode away the value of what you borrowed, you never have to repay it because your stocks keep going up. But of course, another way to avoid it is to move out of the state of California. Uh, But if you're moving any place in the United States, even if you're going to move to a state that does not have a state income tax, you won't be able to avoid the 55.9% federal capital gains tax unless you move to Puerto Rico where the capital gains tax is zero. And if this tax hike happens, it will stay at zero. And so a lot more people are going to be rushing to Puerto Rico. I mean, they're already coming and even more are going to come. But the reason I even wanted to talk about Puerto Rico now is because of all the negative press that is Uh, being put out there. Now, maybe this negative press is out there to try to discourage people from coming to Puerto Rico, but I think it's going to have the opposite effect. Just like, you know, they ran GQ, ran a very negative story on Puerto Rico about how rich people were coming here and and living the good life. And they they painted a picture uh, of like um, the great Gatsby and the roaring 20s and wild parties and beautiful girls. And somehow this was supposed to be a bad thing. And, you know, I think a lot of people read what was supposed to be a negative article and they were like, yes, sign me up. How do I get to Puerto Rico? And so that brought more people there. But I think this recent article in Time magazine, big story uh, in Time, you can see it on the Internet. But there's also been some local stories. There's been some local Internet personalities, reporters who have been putting out YouTube videos that are very negative about the tax incentives here in Puerto Rico and the people who are moving to Puerto Rico to take advantage of those tax incentives, they think it's a problem, right? They want, they want us to leave. You know, gringo go home, Yankee go home. I mean, they're blaming the problems in Puerto Rico on all these immigrants, which is really laughable. But, you know, in comparison to America trying to scapegoat immigrants for their problems, uh, Puerto Rico, well, they're trying to scapegoat immigrants for the problems they have. And, you know, it's one of the interesting things about it is when you had a lot of people who complained about the immigrants coming in, uh, you know, and uh, taking our jobs or driving up uh, the crime rate. There are a lot of people on the left who said, look, all this is a code word for racism. The reason that Republicans or Trump people are anti-immigration is because they just don't like Hispanics, right? They're racist against Hispanics, and they just don't want more Hispanics in the country. They want to keep the country more European, more white, and they just don't like all these Hispanics coming in from Mexico. Uh, and, And so 
uh, it's really racism that is behind their reason that they don't want uh, illegal immigration is they're just covering up for their racism. Now, I never believed that was the case. I think that their their reasons for opposing immigration had nothing to do with racism. Uh, I think some of the reasons were misguided. I think the idea that immigrants are taking our jobs is wrong. I don't think there's a, a, a limited number of jobs. In fact, there's lots of jobs that are going unfilled. There are lots of businesses that can't hire anybody because nobody wants the jobs because the government is giving uh, Americans a better deal not to work. So we could use some more immigrants to come in and actually take these jobs that Americans don't want. I, I think the problem is uh, when immigrants come in for welfare benefits Clearly, that is a drain on the economy. If they're coming in and working, it's a net benefit. We benefit from more labor. Labor is a resource, and the more labor we have, uh, the more prosperous we have. But if people come in, but they don't actually work, they just go on the dole, then that is a problem, and it is correct to oppose that, but that doesn't make you racist. But the left wanted to immediately blame this anti-immigration on racism. And of course, I always said that immigration makes a convenient scapegoat. We have real serious problems in the United States that are not being caused by immigration. And, you know, I'm not in favor of illegal immigration. I want legal immigration and I want to make it easier for people to immigrate legally because then there'll be less illegal immigration. I also want to turn off the welfare magnets, not only for immigrants, but for the people that are already here so that when people come to America, they come to work. Just like all four of my grandparents came here, they didn't get any welfare. There was no government caseworkers in Ellis Island to meet them. They didn't get any housing credits. They didn't get any food stamps. They got nothing, right? They had to, they had to sink or swim totally on their own. And, uh, you know, they, they swam, you know, because, you know, America was a nation of rugged individuals. We didn't depend on handouts. We rolled up our sleeves and we got to work. And, and so that's what I want to happen. But the left was saying, no, 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 this is a bunch of racism. Well, when it comes to Puerto Rico, a lot of the hostility and animosity towards the immigrants is actually racism. And nobody cares. I mean, they don't make any bones about it. They don't want white people coming into Puerto Rico. They don't want white people screwing up their Latin culture. This is part of it. They want to preserve their culture. Now, look, I am not against Puerto Ricans wanting to preserve their culture. I love the Puerto Rican culture. I think it's great. I think it's one of the great things about being here is the Latin culture. And, you know, I don't want that to change. Now, sure, in my community, it's not as Latin, but when I venture out, I mean, I like that vibe. I, I, I you know, I, I've always enjoyed Spain. It's been one of my favorite countries to visit, uh, you know, to be over there. I, 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 like, I like that. And so I like that about Puerto Rico. Now, I would like it if the Puerto Rican government put out some content in English. You know, I had to go to this website from the government and I can't figure out what to do because there is no English translation. You know, at least in America, we have Spanish translations for everything. But the Puerto Rican government has English translations for almost nothing. Uh, and, you know, so the, the private companies are a little bit better at providing an English version, but the government is very bad at doing that. But nobody is calling out the Puerto Ricans for being racist in their desire to maintain the purity of their culture and keep out the white guys. But again, it's the exact same thing or in reverse because Americans were accused of being racist 
because they didn't want the Hispanics coming in. But here in Puerto Rico, the Hispanics don't want the whites coming in. But nobody, nobody says that's racist. But the most ridiculous part of the objection to uh, people coming to Puerto Rico is that the people who are coming here are rich. And in general, they're not all rich. I mean, there are plenty of younger people that are coming here that aren't that rich. But yes, in general, the people who are moving to Puerto Rico to take advantage of these tax incentives are much wealthier than the average Puerto Rican. And so they don't like the fact that this is driving up income inequality, that now there's greater income inequality because rich people are coming here. Why is that a bad thing? Those rich people aren't making the people in Puerto Rico any poorer by their presence. Yes, there is more income inequality because a bunch of rich people have moved to the island, but none of that is diminishing the quality of life for the people who are already here. In fact, it is the exact opposite. The rich people coming to the island, that is benefiting all the people who are already here. I mean, one of the things that the article was talking about was, oh, they're worried about gentrification, that these rich people are coming in and they're bidding up real estate prices. Yes, they are in the wealthiest parts of Puerto Rico. So you're telling me that you're worried about Puerto Rican millionaires being outbid by even richer millionaires that are coming in from the United States? That's a problem when a wealthy guy from California comes in and outbids a wealthy guy from Puerto Rico. And so now the guy from Puerto Rico either doesn't get the house or sells. I mean, a lot of the properties in my neighborhood that are being sold for two, three, four times what the prices were a few years ago, the Puerto Ricans are making a killing selling these houses to the gringos. It's their choice to sell and take the money. And now they're going to move to some other area of Puerto Rico. But none of this is hurting the Puerto Rican economy. I mean, there was a lot of talk about this house in uh, my neighborhood that sold for $30 million, which was the highest price paid for a house in Puerto Rico at the time they wrote the story. Of course, since then, uh, there's been houses that have traded for more than $30 million and they made a big deal. But the guy from, you know, because they said a guy from California bought the house. He did. He bought it from a guy from Arizona. And where did the guy from Arizona get it? He built it. The house wasn't even there. The guy from Arizona paid for a brand new construction. They wouldn't have even constructed that house. And I think he paid $12 million. But the only reason somebody paid $12 million was because some rich guy from Arizona was willing to buy it. And so they constructed it. Meanwhile, there were all these construction jobs. It was vacant land. It wasn't a teardown. There was nothing there. And all these jobs were created to build this $12 million house for some rich guy from Arizona. Does it matter that he sold it to an even richer guy from California? How is that hurting Puerto Rico? You know, there are so many problems in Puerto Rico right now. I know because I live here. Now, there's a lot of good things about Puerto Rico, too. And that's why I stay here. But for all the problems that Puerto Rico has, the one problem they don't have is wealthy people from the mainland moving here. That is not their problem. These people are coming and bringing businesses, starting businesses. They're bringing their capital. They're bringing in their know-how. They're bringing their ambition, right? And they are benefiting the economy. I mean, not only are they filling the banks with cash, right? Now they're opening up local bank accounts. And now the banking sector is more solvent. It has more money to make loans to Puerto Ricans for small business, for people buying houses. You know, the, the banks are loaded with cash because wealthy people are moving here. And these are bank deposits that the banking sector never would have had. 
people are coming in and even though they're paying low taxes, they're paying some taxes, 4% of something is better than 33% of nothing, especially when it's 4% of a big something. And that's money that Puerto Rico never would have had. But in the meantime, these businessmen are hiring people. And those people who are getting jobs, they're also paying taxes in Puerto Rico. They wouldn't have been paying any taxes if they didn't have any jobs. And in fact, they recently did a study and it showed that the jobs that are being created by these new companies that are being started by the immigrants who came here because of the tax incentives, on average, they're paying twice as much as the average Puerto Rican wage. So not only are the people who are coming here creating jobs, they are creating high paying jobs. This is a problem. Why? You know, why are people upset about this? And it's not just the jobs that are directly created by the people who are coming here, but it's all the economic activity that leads to even more jobs. I mean, take me, right? I'm living in Puerto Rico. I got a Puerto Rican lawyer that I didn't have before. I got a Puerto Rican accountant uh, that I didn't have before. Those guys are making money. I've used Puerto Rican uh, realtors to buy property. I have a Puerto Rican contractor to improve my property. He's hiring all sorts of guys. I mean, what do we do? I go to the gym. I have a train, you know, a trainer. You pay that guy. I had a party. We had a big party here for my daughter over the weekend. Well, we had a caterer. We had a photographer. We had entertainers. All these guys are getting paid. This party wouldn't have taken place if we weren't here to throw it. There's all sorts of jobs. We go to restaurants. We do shopping. None of this would happen. And think about all of the charities in Puerto Rico that are getting donations from people who never heard about these charities. A lot of the people who are coming here who are making these charitable donations to Puerto Rican charities, they would not have made these donations if they didn't move to Puerto Rico. And in fact, there are a lot of people who have come here uh, that are very uh, charitable and philanthropic. There are a lot of people who have come to Puerto Rico and started charities who are raising money. They're throwing fundraisers and dinners and all sorts of stuff. I mean, I know I go to them. I contribute myself, but I never would have contributed. I never would have thought about Puerto Rican charities if I was still living in Connecticut. So everybody is better off. I mean, why on earth would you object? Doesn't matter what business you have. Don't you want more customers, right? If you're a worker, don't you want more employers bidding for your talent, right? You want more people who could potentially hire you because then you can have higher wages. There is no downside to Puerto Rico from Americans coming down here. You know, there's this one local reporter or something. She put out a video. She was very upset that this beachfront property near where she lived. And she used it for free because she let her puppies play there and she had some horses and she was able to use uh, this vacant land. And now she wants to stop it from being developed because the private owner now is going to build uh, nice uh, condominiums on this beachfront property that was just barren. Uh, and there's so much beachfront property in Puerto Rico that nobody has built on. It is crazy. I mean, look, if you compare Hawaii to Puerto Rico. I mean, there is no, uh, like you go to Maui, there, there's no beach that doesn't have a house on it. There's something there. Puerto Rico, you've got miles and miles and miles of coastline with absolutely nothing. And now, oh, now there's some people coming. We can develop this land, 
right, and make it beautiful instead of barren and plant uh, trees and build houses and grass and, and, and really make a nice community and improve the housing stock. And, oh, they're objecting to it. Oh, no, we don't want this. We got, we got to stop this. We got to have this land declared as farmland or, you know, we can't allow it to be developed because it's going to ruin the environment. It's not going to ruin the environment. It's going to improve the environment. I mean, where I live in Puerto Rico is far more beautiful because of the improvements that man has made than if it was still in the condition uh, that God created it. I think human beings are improving uh, the environment. We're not destroying it. There's still going to be plenty of of untouched uh, land. But think about, again, all of the people that would be employed in in, in building uh, whatever is going to be constructed there. And as more people are able to move there, more jobs are created. I mean, in Puerto Rico, only 40% of the people actually work. The labor force participation is much lower than it is on the mainland. But if we have more people coming to Puerto Rico, starting businesses, building uh, homes, building uh, condominiums, right? We're going to need more jobs. A lot of these people are going to work. And what is going to bring them into the workforce? Higher wages. That's what happens. You get a bunch of people coming in. They start bidding up wages. Look, it is a no-lose situation. Yet you have a group of people who basically, and it's pure class warfare, right? Why do people, other than racism, right? Other than the fact that they don't like the gringos, which again, nobody seems to have a problem with racism when it's the Hispanics who are racist against whites. They think it's terrible if whites want to preserve their culture and they don't want the Hispanics coming in, right? But it's no problem if the Hispanics want to preserve their culture and keep the white people out, right? That's that They got no problem. But the real argument here with or the real driving force is class warfare it's hating the rich what is bothering this group of people is that wealthy people a they're coming here and they don't even want them here that's how ridiculous it is and then they don't think it's right that wealthy people are coming here and paying low taxes but if the taxes were high no wealthy people would come here And the big problem, it's not just that the taxes are very high right now, right? The top rate in Puerto Rico is 33%. And that necessarily wouldn't detract people from coming here because that's still lower than uh, the federal tax. And and especially when you consider the state tax, the reason that people need these tax incentives to uproot themselves and come here is because they're afraid that if they get here, the government will then see them as a source of income and jack up their taxes, right? And that's why they need to decree. Because when you come to Puerto Rico, not only do you get these low taxes, but the government gives you a decree which guarantees that those taxes cannot go up until the year 2035. Otherwise, since Puerto Rico has so much debt, right, and it's also a democracy and you have a lot of poor people who don't work, right, and they have a lot of debt, are you going to be dumb enough as an affluent American business owner? Are you going to move into a situation where you have so many voters that are going to pass taxes on you that they're not going to have to pay to try to tax you to solve the debt problems that were here long before you got here? You know, I think it's funny, too, where I hear people trying to blame all this debt on the people who have come here for these tax incentives. The debt was accumulated long before people came here. 
And now some people try to say, hey, you know, this was sold as a panacea. We were told that if, you know, we had these tax breaks, that everything would be better and the economy is still bad. To the extent that it's still bad, it's not because of all this money and capital and jobs that have come to Puerto Rico. It's despite them. And the fact of the matter is, without the thousands and thousands of people that have come here and the billions that have been invested here by the recipients of these tax benefits, without that, the economy would clearly be in far worse shape than it is right now. The problems in Puerto Rico are not because of these immigrants. It's because of the government that's in Puerto Rico. The immigrants that are coming are helping to mitigate the damage. And in fact, at some point, the the benefits are going to be so powerful that even though the government is a negative force, this force is going to overwhelm it, especially in this post-COVID environment where so many more people can now move to Puerto Rico and take advantage of not just these tax incentives, but an incredible way of life and lifestyle uh, where people can escape these big cities, escape the crime, escape the, uh, uh, the taxes. And to the extent that they need to be locked down, at least they're going to be locked down in a pleasant environment. But the fact that more and more people can now work from home, they no longer are tied to the inner city. They don't have to be in New York. They don't have to be in Boston or Chicago or Philadelphia or Chicago or San Francisco or Los Angeles. They can be in Puerto Rico and more and more people want to get here. But the point of this is to look at how ridiculous this is that a group of people are blaming their problems on wealthy immigrants. I mean, at least in America, we blame our problems on poor immigrants. Now, again, I disagree with using poor immigrants as a scapegoat. But can you imagine blaming your problem on rich immigrants? The problem is too many rich people coming to Puerto Rico and bringing too much money into the island, bringing too much capital, starting too many businesses, hiring too many people. This is a huge problem. We have to put a stop to this problem. And in fact, one I think one person in the article uh, didn't like the fact that we were coming here because we might vote, right? And we may vote not to become a state. Right. Well, of course, but there's no way we're going to be outnumbered because obviously Puerto Rico is better off as a territory than a state because as a territory, the federal income tax would apply here. And to the extent that you had to pay high Puerto Rican taxes in addition to high federal income taxes, nobody could afford to come here. The only reason that people can afford to relocate to Puerto Rico is because of these tax incentives. But, you know, another problem of the article is it overlooks the fact that so many native-born Puerto Ricans also qualify for these tax credits. The only tax incentive that a lot of Puerto Ricans who, you know, were born and grew up here, the ones that they don't get are the zero capital gains. But, There is a program for businesses. If you set up a business that is exporting services, you qualify for a 4% corporate tax and any dividends that that company pays to Puerto Rican residents, including those that were born here and lived here their entire lives, all those dividends are tax-free. So anybody in Puerto Rico can start up a business that exports services or can work for a business that exports services and enjoy tax-free dividends and pay a 4% tax. I mean, could you imagine what would be happening in any state in the union if those tax incentives existed? Imagine, 
right? If you were living in California, you were living in Texas, you were living in Florida or New York, and you had a deal right now where you can set up a business, right, and export your services to people outside the United States, right, and whatever you earned was only going to pay a 4% tax, and that was it. I mean, could you imagine all the businesses that would start, how much money would be made? The best part about Puerto Rico is America counts as an export market because Puerto Rico is small. There's only 3 million people here. So if you have a job right now in the U.S., chances are you have customers all over the U.S. Well, if you can do that job from Puerto Rico, you're exporting your services because the U.S. is an export market from Puerto Rico. And so all the money that you earn working in Puerto Rico is exempt from the federal income tax because Puerto Rico is not a state. But now, because Puerto Rico got smart, it's also exempt from the Puerto Rico tax, and it's only 4%. So these guys have got a golden goose here in Puerto Rico, yet you got people who are living here who are so misguided that they actually want to kill it. (music) 